Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're in the LightEye studio. That's right, we've got two people in person, and we've got one person virtually. These three women are part of Stantec's lighting group. Rachel Fitzgerald is the discipline lead, Allison Fiedler is an associate, and Jessica Smith is a lighting designer. Based out of both the Denver and Seattle locations, they're here to talk to us a little bit today about the advocacy for lighting through something you've probably heard of called the Well Building Standard. There's a new version out, version two. It's built on everything that we've learned as an industry, and it's also given us an opportunity to maybe have a better conversation, a stronger starting point about what it means to build human-centric spaces and create uh, lit environments that are super, 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 super people-oriented. Did I say super enough? I don't know. I don't know. Add a few more yeah. supers. Add, add, add a few more <laughs> supers, right? That's, that's pretty funny. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. How are you all doing? Good. Great. Good. Thanks for having us. Thanks virtually for, and in person. Absolutely. I know that uh, we had originally actually planned to do this around the Arclight Summit that was in Dallas. And due to COVID and travel restrictions, we couldn't do it. But I'm glad we were able to get this on the calendar, get this on the books, and get this recorded. It's been a heck of a couple years. And I know that you all are back in the office a little bit. So what we'll talk to today, uh, you're getting a chance to practice what you preach and be humans in a built environment again, which has got to be somewhat exciting. Before we get into all of it, though, I just want to let everybody else know who are the three of you and how did each one of you get your start in lighting? I'm Rachel Fitzgerald, as Sam introduced. My lighting beginnings came from University of Colorado. So I'm a buff grad from the lighting program there in the era of Davis and Delora which dates me a little bit for those that know all that. And then from there, I've spent almost the last 20 years, more or less at Stantec. So our firm was acquired. So a uh, acquisition growth into the Stantec world, but have evolved through some engineering and become fully focused on lighting design. And that's been my career path and passion and growing a team and doing good work. Hey everyone, uh, this is Jessica from the Stantec Denver office, and I got my start also in architectural engineering program, but at Penn State. And after graduating, I worked actually for a mechanical contractor doing mission critical electrical work. Now that sounds fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but decided to switch it up a little bit a couple years in. Definitely wanted more lighting design experience in my life. So joined the lighting group at Stantec, got more experience on projects where I'm thinking about and designing the space that people are in, thinking about their experience in the built environment as it pertains to lighting and loving it. That's awesome. Allison, how about you? How'd you get your start in lighting? A little bit of a different approach. I went to Oregon State University and uh, as an interior design major, and we took one lighting design class in our interiors courses, and I really liked lighting. I told my professor she got me hooked up with various things, specifically ILD. And I went to a conference in Cancun as a student for IELD, and I met a bunch of people that love what they do. I didn't really know that lighting design was a profession back then. And then from there on, I kind of nerded out on lighting and focused everything I was doing towards it. And uh, yeah, here I am today. I've been with Stantec since 2013 and still loving it. You know, I think there's probably a few people that will listen to this podcast that will remember that 
Cancun trip that you just mentioned. <laughs> there was that, that was a that was a pretty incredible IALD conference. I personally was not there, but I literally still hear about it today. And all I can say is, where was my invitation? Well, Sam, you just weren't <laughs> you just weren't paying attention, Sam. But yeah, it was a good one. It, we it, met at the was it the IES Austin conference that we met at. We did, yeah. You and I met. Right. Um, that was the first. I don't know what year that was. Two thousand eleven. It was the first year that I was ever a lighting professional. Allison, myself, and what like. Zach, Jennifer, there was like seven or eight people that were like part of the EP program before the EP program existed. It was it was fun. We certainly are all lighting nerds. I think we can agree on that. The one thing that I think is interesting is um, through all the experience that sits in this room, throughout this conversation, you all have different perspectives. You all work on different projects and in, in, in different markets as well. Talk to me a little bit about what the design trends are in construction today across the board from what owners want to how you're practicing to what's changing. I think as we've seen for a little while, the trend is do what's better for the environment and better for the people. So, you know, we've seen a growth over the past decade or more in regards to things like lead and lead is a requirement and sustainability metrics. But more recently, over the past few years, we've seen a huge uptick in, for better or for worse, some people don't like this term, but human-centric uh, solutions and really focusing on well-being in our design solutions. And so from what I see as trends in both the broader design and construction industry, but also specifically relative to lighting. I think there's a continued focus on those kind of two qualifications of doing design that is good for the environment and good for the people. What do you think, Jessica? How would you add to that? I would definitely say it's that focus on the human perspective in the built environment. I think that clients are curious about it. I think that they enjoy hearing about, you know, with new technology and other things that we have, hearing that from us as the experts and just interested in bringing that into their spaces. I think definitely the human perspective in well-being is it's what's important. Allison, do you think that when you think about the curiosity and the human perspective of it, it's giving us an opportunity in the lighting industry to maybe shift people's thinking to understand how light has a stronger impact on things? Absolutely. I also think a lot of people talk to me about, you know, lighting casually, like my friends or friends of friends, and they all know that lighting matters, but they don't have a vocabulary to talk about it. Um, and I think that extends to our clients. So I think there's a number of ways that Advocacy for lighting is giving people vocabulary. Educating them is giving them vocabulary to be able to identify you know, what it is that we need to do to make human-centric design better. You bring up a very interesting point, the vocabulary of lighting. I think to us, to most people in the lighting industry, it's second nature. What would you say is the basic lighting vocabulary that naturally, if people know nothing, where do we start with them? As with any design professional, I think we all have experiences of chatting with a client about something and they're using a word over and over again. For example, I, I had a client once that would use the word harsh to describe a lot of different facets of lighting. And it took me a very long time to develop that relationship with her to understand what harsh meant. Uh, and it turns out it meant multiple things. It was glare. It was you know, surface brightness. It was even flicker sometimes. <laughs> and so... Uh, developing that vocab really helps us kind of key in on what we're trying to resolve for our clients. Yeah, it's funny because when Sam asked that question, the first thing I thought of is, I think it starts with what the clients don't like. 
So it often starts with the conversations of, well, my current space is dark, or it's uncomfortable, or it's uninviting. So it starts with all of these very generic terms, like harsh, (laughs) and figuring out, okay, what does that mean to the client? And then how do we frame that in metrics and design language that we can use as part of our tools in solving their design needs and present to them good and comfortable lighting. It's super interesting because at the end of the day, they're hiring you as a designer to provide a service. They don't want to probably learn more than they have to. And in some instances, I mean, let's pick on something that I think everybody can relate to. Like you can go out in the backyard or not the backyard, the back driveway and get a hose and a sponge and wash your car yourself, right? Or you can just like drive through something that pulls your car through and you have absolutely no clue how anything's happening, but your car is clean when it's done. Right? It's, a, it's a super simple concept. And I think lighting, maybe people sometimes just show up and say, well, every room has lights. It's a super simple concept. I hired you to do it. Just do it and don't make it harsh. Make it good. Make it comfortable. But you do have to take them a step further because it isn't a binary experience like your car is dirty, your car is clean. Don't ask me why. I just came up with a car wash analogy. <laughs> but I think it's super, it's, it's super relevant to this conversation, right? Hiring someone to do just lighting design is like pulling you through the car wash. But when you have metrics in place, you start to be able to have this real conversation that enables that vocabulary. And I think it's also, in particular with some of our perspective in many occasions working in a multidisciplinary atmosphere, it's also picking through the language and the vocabulary to discern what's actually lighting related and what's not. So again, we might have clients that come in and say, well, I don't like my current space. It's very dark. It's very uninviting. Well, that may actually have absolutely nothing to do with the lights that may be entirely based on the finishes and a dated feel and different qualifications and characteristics. And so I think that comes into the conversation too, is how much of this problem as design is problem solving, how much of the problem is understanding and having a lighting vocabulary, but also being able to put that into context of a larger design picture of what's the broader impact and how does the lighting integrate with the rest of the design because you can't pull one piece apart without the other. The whole of the experience is what the clients take away. And when clients go to build a building, you all as a designers, this is your life. Rachel has 20 years of experience doing this. I mean, I can't imagine how many buildings you've seen, thought about, touched, felt, and walked through compared to your client who's going to do this once. So a baseline is an important thing for them. And that's where well comes in. Let's talk a little bit more about well and specifically version two and how that's been able to address that overarching need that clients have and what it starts to do in terms of taking lighting and making it a part of that conversation. So well v2 actually launched in 2020, as you might guess, the second iteration of the well building standard. And I think the really great thing about having a tool like this is it gives designers a toolbox and a common framework. So within that toolbox, we're picking up some of that vocabulary and we're being given a handful of features that are categorized as part of the light concept. And we're able to evaluate design solutions against some of those features and the metrics within them as part of our toolkit in developing designs to be able to substantiate whether aspects of our lighting design solutions based on the current industry standards we have and whether those meet kind of an air quotes a well-being component and qualification of those design elements 
And when you look at lighting specifically, how do you feel like the version two of Well has done a good job of starting to, what I might say, uh, formalize and quantify this vocabulary that people need to take a step further. They can't just say harsh or cool and give you as designers an opportunity to say, not only do we need to talk about this, but hey, you can get points for this. With version two compared to version one, version two breaks the light concept into a number of different features. There, I can't remember the number now of how many were in version one, but there's a lot more in version two and and it helps break those apart and give us smaller categories of quantifying things, which then in turn is more points for clients to uh, obtain a certification. When you think about what it means to break things down, talk to me a little bit about some of the features, some of those categories that have been developed that you feel like are pushing this entire conversation in the right direction. One that comes to mind for those that aren't very familiar with well, there are preconditions and there's optimizations. Preconditions are requirements in order to obtain uh, certification. So you have to get those. And then beyond that, there's optimizations, which are additional points where you can pick and choose which ones you use. So to answer your question, Sam, one aspect that I think is great for the advocacy of lighting and developing those standards is one of the preconditions points us back to the IES lighting handbook. And that's something that, you know, some of our clients maybe don't know exists. And that helps give us clear direction with them of how to quantify light levels in the space to ensure that the the atmosphere is appropriate for occupants. Uh, But beyond that, especially with daylight and giving occupants access to daylight. That's another one that I think is really critical to human health. The better views that we have and the better daylighting exposure we have, the better we feel during the day. And so well is attempting to take these subjective feelings and things that we talk about and quantifying them. I know that glare is another important thing that is always discussed in lighting. Jessica, talk to me a little bit more about that and what Well's doing for that. Sure. And I would say that I think looking at some of the optimizations within Well, it kind of takes things a little bit of a step further beyond, you know, looking at IES handbook requirements. We're taking a look at some of these other metrics. And so for the glare one specifically uh, in Well V2, it gives you a couple of options of ways to comply with this and different ways to look at how we're measuring glare um, and then specifically what's acceptable in a given space. And I think that's something that feels like it's something that's evolving with each you know, iteration of well. And as we learn more about what's acceptable and what do we prefer in an office environment and how you actually feel in the space based on the metrics that you're looking at, if you know, if it's UGR, the unified glare rating, or if you're looking at how much luminance at each angle in the fixture, these are the ways that we're measuring it, but how does it actually feel? And so I think that well gives us that baseline, like you said, of taking a look at this, and this is what they define as acceptable. And then it gives you as the lighting designer something to go off of for how you want to design the space. I want to dive in a little bit more to talk about what it means to have a metric-based system that evaluates very much an objective feeling that a human has. With 7 billion people on the face of this planet, maybe more at this point, there are so many different personalities, there are so many different ways, things, and needs that humans have. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dive into that. We'll talk just a little bit more about why quantifying humans is both a good thing and a bad thing. How well this is a good start, it's not perfect, and design is ultimately the key to success. Sound good? Sounds good. Sounds good. 
Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, the Light Pod is brought to you by Lada. A hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you things like this podcast, and of course, a bunch of fun, short, and informative videos that talk about light, that celebrate light, that document it, and maybe even show you a cool new thing or two. Check them out. That's L-Y-T-E-I dot com. And welcome back. Over the break, we were catching up just a little bit more about the total points available in well and what lighting is a part of that. On a percentage basis, 14% of all the points available in well can be attributed to both lighting, lighting design, and how light is used in a space. It's an incredible number. It's a metric that benchmarks the importance of lighting in the built environment where Oftentimes, it has not been the case. There's been things like lead, there was well version one, and lighting continues to be something that, no pun intended, a spotlight has been put on. It's been increasingly important, and that really has a lot to do with the fact that human-centric lighting and creating a built environment around people and lighting being a huge factor of that is something that's super important. I know that there's always room for improvement and that guidelines are guidelines, but when you all think about and look at the framework that Well has laid out for you today. Talk to me just a little bit more about it, about how it supports what you need to do and really how it creates that firm foundation. I think that, I mean, so you have the requirements, the things that you have to have if you're pursuing a Well project. They say these are the things that you need to have true in your lighting design and um, on the project. And then there's other things that you can look at and it's, other facets of the lighting design, that it's glare, it's flicker, it's improved daylighting. Daylighting is is in there as a requirement, but taking it a step further. And so it kind of creates this framework for a lighting designer to step off of and taking a look at the metrics that are required and then to say, how does this apply in our space? Is this important to the specific space type that we have? Do we think this is important to the client? But I think it's something that we're able to take as stepping stones. And having the metrics as a baseline of that is something that the well concepts within the lighting framework are developed by experts in the field. And so these metrics mean something. And if we're following these metrics, then we're creating a lighting design that is perpetuating some of these things that are really important. You mentioned they're developed by experts in the field. This isn't made up in a vacuum. The entire well-building standard is fundamentally built around research, around what people have experienced. Talk to me a little bit more about how lighting has not only become a part of that, but will continue to become even a bigger part of that as we move forward with things like a quantifiable system. I'll speak to that a little bit as I am a content advisor for the light concept with the well building program. And I think part of what's great is it all started on the backbone of research. And as it has continued to evolve, there are, I don't know, I could pull it up online, but there's like 20 content advisors specifically for the light concept. And some of us have tangible design backgrounds. Some of us come from manufacturing, some from research, some from other education and different backgrounds. And so I think 
the really incredible thing about the growth of a system like this, a quantifiable system, is that it is taking input from a number of different sources. Is every piece of every feature and requirement going to resonate with us as lighting designers? Maybe not, because it's taking into account other elements from research and from other aspects of a bigger picture. And I think part of what's great is if you look through the list of features, and Jessica even mentioned this earlier in nodding to the daylight credits of, we as lighting designers can't address all of these features in a vacuum. Daylight is monumentally a component of architecture and of the skin and the glazing and the openings. That's not anything that's in my wheelhouse as a lighting designer. I don't determine those things, but I can help have the conversations and guide the conversations about what the architectural team and other people in the team need to keep in mind as we move to try and achieve some of these goals in our design solutions. Same is true some of the credits about visual balance and color quality. Some of those components are looking at what are your interior finishes? What's your desk finish? What are your reflectance values? Again, as a lighting designer, I don't control those. I don't make those specifications. But we collectively, as the bigger design team, the big D component of design, have to come together and keep all of these moving parts and different metrics in mind as we collectively come to these design solutions. So I think that's one of the fantastic things about a system like Well is you can't do it in a vacuum. You've got to be looking at these design solutions in a holistic, whole building, whole solution kind of mentality. And that's not historically the way design has always been done. But I think most everyone would advocate that that's the best way to do design. I put myself in an owner's shoes, somebody who's writing a, a billion dollar check to build a brand new office building or a brand new research facility or a new hospital or heck, maybe even just a beautiful new campus for an entire school or an organization. I would expect that everybody I hire communicate and coordinate, but you just brought up traditionally that it's been the complete opposite. It's here's the skin, now fill it in and send me back your vellum. Right, and we'll incorporate it into the drawing set. Now with technology and collaborative design, and we're sitting here uh, talking to the three of you who are part of a massive, massive global firm that is vertically integrated from beginning to end. Theoretically, the email addresses for every email on the project don't have to leave the server in your building, even though it's all in the cloud now. What does it mean to be able to see a firm like Stantec, who is vertically integrated, who does want to collaborate across design trades, now have something like Well to also advocate for that and watch your peers and watch the rest of this industry start to take note of that and recognize how important it is to a successful project? I would say, you know, so for example, in my office in Seattle, I sit right next to our AV team and we are able to talk about the areas that cross over among our disciplines on projects, but that's not always the case. And I also don't always know what they know and they don't always know what I know or what aspects I might care about, what aspects they might care about. And so well through their framework has given us basically discussion items point by point of, well, who, who is taking care of this? And I can raise my hand and say, well, I care about that. And somebody else can say, well, I care about that too. 
And then we're able to have an open discussion about what's the best resolution for the owner and the client. And so again, coming back to the vocabulary, we might as well call this like a vocabulary podcast. It gives us common grounds of what to talk about to ensure that we are providing that holistic design package uh, where we've all gathered together virtually or in person in a room to discuss what's important for the project. You know, Allison, it goes without saying that the vocabulary is a big part of design. And while not everybody needs to know everything, you have the opportunity and the experience to, as you mentioned, sit next to somebody who isn't practicing what you are every day, but potentially working on the same project in the virtual world, in the new world, in the age of going digital and working remotely and everything else. It's critical to have this framework. It's critical to say, this is what we are going to use as our foundation. I know that while the framework is there and it gives you starting point of conversation, Rachel mentioned a little bit earlier that just because it's there doesn't mean you have to agree with it. And I want to unpack that and peel that layer of the onion back just a little bit more. Talk to me about what it means to have a framework that starts conversations, but doesn't necessarily end them. You know, I think just having worked through some of these features on a handful of design projects that are actively integrating well into the project goals. Some of these features in concept sound great. And then in reality, when you get into the details and the metrics and the how-to and going through the process, there's some of them that are simply unattainable. And maybe that's just because of your project type. Maybe that's because of your variant. Maybe it's because of the budget and other constraints your project has. But there's some of those struggles of, and I think, you know, even if you go to a bigger picture of societies and bigger things, like often doing what's right isn't always easy. And so in some of these features, the objectives are great, but sometimes they feel very unattainable. And as designers and engineers and some of us that like metrics and numbers, speaking for myself, you know, I always want to think something's attainable and that you can get there, but sometimes you just can't. And Again, maybe that's because of a variety of different constraints on your project, but those, to me as a designer, can be very frustrating. But that's not to say that the overarching goals and the ideas that these features and that the WELL framework puts forth aren't something that should be strived towards. To strive towards that is excellent, and you may not reach excellence on every feature on every project you attempt it's just not feasible but it's picking out that's i think the joy of a system like this is you don't have to check every single box and get every single credit within the light concept maybe you only get a handful of them but that contributes to the bigger picture of the whole and that doesn't mean that you've failed in doing good design but maybe there were just other metrics and other limitations that didn't allow you to get those points for those features for that design project. I think the biggest thing out of all of this is you kind of mentioned it when we were talking about the 14%. Whether we can get all of these features to align on a project or not, it's making it an important piece of the conversation. Having a standard like well is causing us to talk about all of these things. And as lighting designers, it's bringing to the forefront these different elements of design that make what we do more complicated in the sense of, in a good way, from a standpoint of, you know, uneducated me, people might just think, oh, there's lights in a room. Great. Check that box. You've got lighting. But no, does it meet all these other criteria? Is it comfortable? Is it adjustable? Does it have acceptable glare? Is it resulting in good color quality? There's all these conversations behind the scenes, peeling back the layers of the onion that we need to address in doing good design. And the fact that a system like this 
elevates those conversations and brings them to the forefront and highlights the importance of the details of what we do in lighting design is awesome. And we're obviously sitting here talking about lighting, but that's only 14%. I've got to imagine as lighting designers practicing lighting design every day, the table is turned and people are coming to you and using it as a framework to talk about what they want to talk about and how you integrate into their design practice as well. Talk to me just a little bit more about how well is advocating for what you're doing. It's also giving you this incredible opportunity to learn more about your peers that work on different parts of the project every single day. Yeah, even when I was studying for my exam for this, you have to go through all of the different features as well. It's not just lighting that we get tested on. So I had to wander over to one of my mechanical peers and talk to him about what are all these filters? <laughs> talk to me about those. And while somebody might say, oh, well, Allison, isn't that a waste of your time? No, it's not because I'm part of a holistic team. And I think one of the hardest things sometimes is not knowing what you don't know. And so once you can understand how much you don't know, you realize how much you need your team members and to be able to have those conversations. You definitely don't know what you don't know. And the king of that statement is the client, the person who typically kicks off this entire project and funds it all. All they know is they want the space. They want the place. They need something for their people, whether or not it's their employees, their customers. It's very much, you know, an intent to provide uh, something to someone. And they certainly know nothing about anything in terms of the details or weeds of design compared to you all who practice design on on a professional basis every day. Yet they are asking for a plaque for certification now because this holistic system has proven itself to be so successful. And it's not necessarily the fact they care about how many points, it's they walk into a space that has a well certification attached to it. And they say, well, if that has a certification, I want my space to feel like that. So we should probably start with that as a framework. What's it been like to watch the design community basically have a a metric be put in place that advocates for good design in general? When I was learning about Well initially, one of my favorite components actually was the nourishment feature. And just that it's taking, you know, what historically with design and architecture would be and saying, no, no, let's actually also influence the size of the plates that are available in your cafeteria because we really care that much about the health of the occupants, not just what the building's doing to them, but the behaviors within it. That's my little Well advocacy unrelated to lighting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's awesome. I think the other thing that's interesting to see just kind of as a bystander, because I can't put my finger on metrics or any details at the moment, but I feel like, you know, if you look at some well core shell kind of office buildings or well multifamily residential type projects, again, I don't have the data, but I feel like they're more in demand. I feel like they're renting faster. They're selling quicker for more of a premium. I think more companies and more people as like residential living want to be in a place that is supposedly better for them. Mm -hmm. I think people are craving that. And particularly when you look at framing this in the times of a pandemic and things, people are asking more questions about what's the air filtration? What's the daylight? Because I might have to be working from home. And so I think in general, there's more demand for something that's got a seal of approval as being better for you based on some standard. I think there's a demand for that. And that standard as well. And that well-building standard has been developed, as Jessica pointed out, from research, from real people, from real spaces. None of this is made up. 
this is not a, a pyramid scheme. This is not a, a way to just simply say like, you know, we want to take your money because, you know, you meet certain requirements. It's a holistic approach to things. It really puts design at the forefront of everything. As Allison said, it's awesome. The three of you are at Stantec, a global firm. You're vertically integrated and you have, I can only imagine... Uh, you know, a hundred projects you want to talk about, another hundred that you can't talk about, and then another hundred that you wish or hope you'll be able to do someday. When you look at what you're doing at Stantec today and helping advance the well-building standard, what do you point to in terms of how you operate and also the kind of client work that you're working on? A lot of things in my mind come down to, regardless of the project type, let's do the best we can and put the best design forward for the people. So whether it's working on tech company office space, whether it's working on a healthcare project, multifamily residential, transit work that's got shift work for bus maintenance and things like that, we can have a huge impact on making better quality space. And I think as a design team, if we don't go into these projects, thinking about how can we make this better? And so to me, the baseline is always evolving. So the baseline isn't just code compliance. The baseline isn't, you know, use the same solution you used on that project type two years ago. It's what's the best we can do today with the information and the knowledge we have and the tools that we have at our fingertips to do it better. And to me, that's always the design question is just how do we evolve it? How do we keep moving the needle beyond the baseline for whatever the project type is? Because in all of those project types, name one, I feel like we can do it better than it was done last time or two years ago or whatever the last was. And so to me, that's always the challenge. Yeah, I think it's cool to think about so many different project types that we do touch and how the facets of well can be applied on any of these projects. And I've gotten experience on a project getting deep into the weeds of getting, you know, checking the boxes on these metrics, but then also pulling it back and looking at the design holistically and getting a chance to look at that. And then taking a look at another project, which is completely different, where the discussion amongst the, the client and design team has been concerns about seasonal depression. And then a lot of the thought process on the design team, and we we're coming together from you know, lighting team and architecture team talking about it and thinking about it and coming back to these roots and guidelines from the well-building standard. Um, and it's an exciting place to be. And we talked about how, you know, the metrics, they're that baseline almost for a reason. It's its getting that the stepping stone. And there's, you know, maybe some things that might change with this at V3, 4, as we keep going. But it's an exciting space to be in to see all that develop and creating spaces that are designed better. I think the biggest thing is, aside from what Jessica and Rachel have already talked about, is that when I go into a client meeting, I can say, what if we go above and beyond your company standards? And that's an okay conversation these days. I don't get a lot of pushback anymore on that. Certainly people want to know what it's going to cost because money does matter. But everyone's very open to the conversation of, oh, you want to make this better. I love that. And I think that's something that Well has provided with just giving this open conversation within Stantec with our disciplines. I mean, two of our core values at Stantec are we build with community in mind and we put people first. And we're constantly, you know, reevaluating what I do on a daily basis. Is that still complying with those values? 
and well, I think is one venue where we can do that. So yeah, I, I, I love the ability to come to the table in a large meeting and say, can we do the lighting better? Back to the vocab. I have words to explain <laughs> what, what makes it better. Money matters, but people matter more. And being able to communicate what people need is the ultimate, I would argue, test to success. And when people can say what they need, when there's a framework to have a conversation around that, when there's an opportunity as a collaborative and cohesive design team to elevate past what somebody said, well, this is what we did last time, so this is okay for this time, is truly what innovation is all about. It goes without saying that, well, V2 is far from perfect, and nobody is going to deny that. With any standardized system, there's always going to be consensus. There's always going to be an opportunity for things to be right, to be wrong, and to be perfected. The good news is, well, is not going anywhere. And they've shown us as an industry, they're committed to continuing to adapt to it, right? Version two is here. I know version three is already in the works, and I guarantee you somebody is thinking about version 10 150 years from now when, well, let's face it, none of us will be here and podcasting may not even be a thing anymore. It's all about innovating. It's all about creating opportunity. Thank you all so much for this conversation. To dive in a little bit deeper, to unpack what it means to embrace the well-building standard, to not only design with it, but use it as a framework and how our industry can benefit from it as a whole. If people want to get in touch with you, if they want to chat more, or if they just want to maybe link up and have a glass of wine when they're in town in Denver, Seattle next time, what's the best way that they can get a hold of you? Email works great for me. <laughs> Email or find us on LinkedIn. Those are probably the two easy. Yeah. Yeah. Email LinkedIn first name dot last name at stantech.com. Pretty okay. easy. Ladies, thank <laughs> you so much. Good luck with your fight to put well at the forefront of every design. Good luck with innovating and enjoy letting light make the world a better and more beautiful place. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.